3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, crew. You are listening to 3CR Community Breakfast. It's Wednesday. Mm. I am Will. I'm Edwin. And Judith. And Dean. We've got and a full team. Yeah. <laughs> full team. Exciting. First time yeah. in a while. In yeah. months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, almost. Okay. But we're here today. We we're are here. here today. Yeah. Um, so uh, the date is the seventeenth of October. I'm I'm looking around the room. Yep, seventeenth of yeah. October. Yeah. Yeah. Already. And just 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 to be sure, today's going to be a top of twenty-two. Ah. And possible showers. Just possible yeah. showers. Yeah, yeah. Things about on the on the seventeenth of October. On the seventeenth. On the seventeenth of October. Yeah. Um, there are there are whispers of storms. There are whispers yeah. of storms, and I suggest yeah. um, yesterday I didn't take my umbrella out, and I got soaked. So I suggest take. I've got my umbrella today. <laughs> You're suggest. the reason why it rained yeah. yesterday. Yeah. I, I, I think I Melbourne I had my umbrella <laughs> When yeah. you're involved with 3CR. There's always whispers of storms with everything. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's very true. true. Very true. Um, so what have we been? What are we up whispering to? about this morning? Well, I'm not whispering. I'm yelling we out loud about our <laughs> fundraiser on Saturday. That was fantastic. Which we were that's all at, and it was so good. Yeah, so that yep. was uh, looking at the struggle in uh, the Western Sahara. Yeah, the yeah. documentary Life is Waiting, which we saw, and it was a fundraiser organised to help um, the 3CR breakfast shows meet their targets, which we did. Mm, um, yes. Thanks to you folks who turned up. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was um, down at Loop Bar, and um, then we had a, um, a panel discussion with Kamal Fadel, 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 sorry, and uh, Tony Nonus Williams, respectively, from the Australian Western Sahara Association and um, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and a, a whole lot of other groups. And um, just talking about. Uh, sort of parallel struggles amongst Indigenous mm. peoples um, against colonisation and the importance of solidarity and um, just just what exactly is happening in Western Sahara, yeah. which a lot of people maybe at home won't, won't know much about. But um, yes, that, I mean, a lot mm. of people said, you know, at, on the night that they hadn't heard a lot about it and mm. it was really interesting to hear and quite powerful presentation and the film mm. was wonderful, really good. Yes, yeah. absolutely. If you If you have a chance to, I'm not sure... Um, what the online streaming options are for the the documentary that we watched, Life is Waiting, but it gives a very, very comprehensive sort of view of, you know, transition yeah. from Spanish colonialism to the modern Moroccan colonialism, um, the absence of a democratic process and um, and what's happening today. And yes, and, and yeah. generally the silence around it as well. Mm. I mean, mm. That's a saying that France is particularly implicated mm. there. Yes. It still has colonial interests. I don't think there's any other word for it no. in that area. Yeah, and so they're the ones who were, um, who were pointed out by Kamal Fadel yeah. as being the ones who veto having a actual human rights observer in Western Sahara. Um, yes, as part of the UN uh, of the, presence yeah. there, mm, yes. Mm. Yeah. And so I just found that really interesting, you know, mm-hmm. France 
Yeah, France, we associate France, France, France. one of our <laughs> major powers in the yeah. UN, yeah. and we associate yeah. it with you know liberty, equality, and fraternity. I mean, with the revolution and with the, those kinds of ideas, uh. and yet here they are, you know, suppressing um, a particular group of people in the interests of distinct lacks of lack yeah. of fraternity there, Definitely. lack of interest in equality, <laughs> yes, and zero liberty. Um, well, that, yeah. that was the interesting discussion. Also, they brought in the UN and what mm. the point the point of the UN is, yeah. and what, what its role yeah. is in global governance, mm. and what, yeah. what is established to do. Yes. Yeah. It's quite interesting too. Yeah, different a, a variety of views. Mm-hmm. Tanine was um, fairly dismissive of the UN as being sort of a uh, what do you call it? A, a body set up to stop white wars, I think is what she said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in, in the interests yeah. of, of yeah. Um, colonial nations rather yeah. than giving the power them. to colonial nations as well. Yeah, whereas um, Kamal points out that they're the only game in town as far as um, uh, interve- independence activists um, and self-determination. Um, so that's that's a bit of a crossroads and a bit of a, yeah. a and double. then that's where France's mm. right to veto or mm. the, you know position uh, yeah. on the Security Council to veto yeah. means if there are um, groups that France for whatever reason yeah. doesn't support then they, they prevent for example the UN uh, taking information on human rights abuses when they're there to help out in but listen to us we've already started alternative news haven't we <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> we have how, how, how have. long will the UN be sustainable for the no. very well. much indeed yeah. well yeah. strap in alternative news yeah. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now. Okay, and here we are now, alternative news. And there's just been so much going on. But one of the things, stories that really struck me this week was about... Uh, the journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who is a Saudi Arabian journalist and who kind of disappeared in Turkey. And uh, there was a story in Al Jazeera talking about that disappearance, but also the darker side of the crown prince um, in Saudi Arabia. So some of you may remember not long ago, he was on a big tour in the United States Mm. and, uh, you know, shaking hands with lots of people, met up with people around the states who are very keen to, you know, this new, this progressive prince. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but who, who bought 150 luggages and, yeah, 700 yeah. cars and... And, and uh, paying a lot of money for yeah. PR, to PR for the right. United yeah. States. But Judith, he's a young progressive. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, this article points out... He lets the women drive. Well, yeah. While imprisoning the protesters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why he doesn't want them to come out is he doesn't want them to get the credit for the change in policy. Mm. It's got to look like the benevolence of the, um, you know, the oh. crown the prince. Yeah. yeah, the great crown prince. And also might encourage other people. You know, to to fight for their rights. So that was one. But I don't know. Do you remember last year when he kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon? Yes. (laughs) And how the prime minister of Lebanon resigned for a bit. Yeah, well, they insisted that he resign. And didn't he come back? Uh, So what happened was France intervened. Yes. And France again. (laughs) Anyway, of course, uh, formerly they uh, were in Saudi Arabia, in in Lebanon. Not Saudi Arabia, sorry, in um, Oh, as a a colonial power. As a colonial power. And Mm -hmm. Syria, I meant, yeah. So... So they obviously maintain interests in their former colonial power. Anyway, in this case, Macron intervened and invited um, um, Hariri and family, I think, to visit France <laughs> and because, of course, he was kept, his family was also kind of hostage as well. Mm. Anyway, so that was one of the other things. So the, the drivers, and now the, this journalist 
who, um, you know, again, went into the Saudi uh, embassy in, um, Turkey. in Turkey and um, yeah. hasn't come out. Mm. So that's, that was one piece of alternative news. Or, well, you know, we, we're not hearing much. Well, we are mm. hearing about it, but mm. it was interesting mm. to get Al Jazeera's perspective on that. Mm. And I think the angle seems to be um, the Crown Prince is upset with the US, not necessarily with, you know, what's happening in his own country as mm. well. Well, he's trying to, you know, make big sales. And, he, of course, the U.S. has since, uh, he's bought arms from the U.S., quite a mm. lot of arms, despite the human rights abuses. And the other thing that's interesting is how the U, how Trump has now got... I was going to say, how Trump has been... Because he first came out and said, oh, I don't really see why the disappearance... Is any reason to stop selling arms? <laughs> yeah. Which was an absolutely gobsmacking statement. Uh, some, and something along the lines of, you know, I think it's dis- it's disgusting what's happened, but... Um, when I think about billions of dollars of, um, yeah. of arms sales, that doesn't make me feel so bad, or something like that. Yeah, it was, like, it was something like, I, I don't yeah. see, really. Um, yeah. um, he's recently backflipped a little bit to uh, perhaps say we shouldn't. <laughs> yes. uh, perhaps there should be some more investigation. So mm. it's an interesting mm. It's interesting watching Trump kind of sway to accountability. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. odd. Yeah, well, he has to be held accountable at some point, doesn't well, he? Yeah. yeah. We've tried. Yeah. Um, and the other bit of alternative news that I'm sure everybody is across was um, seven days ago, Medicine Sans Frontiers was informed by the government of Nauru that their presence was no longer required. Yeah. Yes. Um, and they were forced to terminate mental health care services on mm. Nauru. And obviously, um, Medicine Sans Frontiers had a press conference on the 11th and they were concerned for the health and well-being of its patients and they described the mental health situation of asylum seekers on the island as, as, mm. as beyond uh, disrepair. Um, sorry, as desperate. And then this morning... Um, we wake up to the news that Prime Minister Scott Morrison is inclined to take up New Zealand's offer to accept 150 refugees from Nauru and Manus Island if Parliament passes a bill that would ban them from coming to Australia. So the plan is oh, to have a lifetime visa ban that would prevent people sent to Nauru or Manus Island after the 19th of July 2013, so five years oh. ago, from receiving a visa to come to Australia. Um, and, and following on from that, obviously the, the, the legislation... So they'll let some of them go to New Zealand if we ban all of them from coming to Australia. That's right, 150, only 150. Well, to be and honest, as long as we let them go, um, but it's only yeah. going to be 150. Yeah, and there's obviously there's yeah. over five, 600 people there. Um, and the Australian Labor are, are wanting to introduce this legislation, we know, um, regarding kids on Nauru. Um, and I was reading... Uh, from the ASRC talking about how that that fails on every critical level. Uh, And, you know, there are six people who have actually come out for the hashtag Kids Off Nauru that I think we should all call, and that includes Craig Lundy, Julia Banks, Adam Band, Rebecca Sharkey, Andrew Wilkie and Russell Broadbent. So if you want to get their phone numbers and give them a call Mm. and, and, and support them, um, you can go to the ASRC website. And, Dean, on that note, um, just letting you know, on Sunday the 21st, we'll be talking about this a little bit more, but there'll actually be a walk for um, supporting to get, getting children off Nauru. Mm. So that will be... I'll give the details out a little bit later, but that will be about 11 to 12 at the Barong Ma in Federation Square, and that will be a march in support of that. Mm. And I think this bill is also silent on where the children and families... Yeah, what about, be, what about the families? Yeah, where I mean, they will be sent for these. care from yeah. Nauru. I mean, yeah. obviously with the MSF being forced to stop providing mental health services, there's other health factors mm. that are impacting these kids. Um, and I guess it's failing to guarantee adequate and appropriate level of medical care too. Mm. Um, 
and it's going to be in the minister's discretion what they get when they come here as well. You know, so it's quite loose. It's not actually having a, a formed guideline and a process for making sure that when they get off Nauru, if they get off Nauru, everybody gets, um, mm. you know, perfect healthcare services. Yeah. Now, continuing on coverage from yesterday, um, from the Tuesday Breakfast team, who mm. do a fantastic job every week, and if you want to listen back to them, you can always go to 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday hyphen breakfast. In fact, you can search up every day by just replacing the word Tuesday with any day of the week, and you'll get some great <laughs> breakfast content. Don't forget the hyphen. I always Magic. I know, I know. Um, uh, we're going to talk about this little... Uh, Senate bill that um, Senate that motion Senate motion that almost made it through the Australian Senate but didn't oh, um, Pauline Hanson's one I, yeah. I'm really just speaking um, to to only three of us in the room here um, are you ashamed of being white because it's okay now <laughs> at least it would have been if this bill passed <laughs> <laughs> the, yes. um, so Where are those boats that was ready to take all the people out of this country? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so it was a it was a bill um, stating that there has been a what, what was the language? It was like a Regrettable. wave so, yeah. of of racist anti-white. Mm. Um, the motion uh, the motion activity. had two parts. Mm. From memory, it was one that it was deplorable. A the deplorable the Senate would like to acknowledge mm. the deplorable rise of anti-white racism and attacks on Western civilizations. Oh. Mm-hmm. And B, that it's okay to be white. And I like how Macias Coleman said it was regrettable that this was oh, meant to pass. That that hurt. Um, one article I read by Generation X, which is a really funky magazine, but what it was saying is it was saying um, the "it's okay to be white" is a common idiom of you know neo-Nazi groups mm. and white supremacy. All yes. throughout the world, mm. yeah. and they were trying. They were giving Pauline the benefit of the doubt, and they're saying either she's knowingly using mm. this tag and quite happily mm-hmm. supporting the beliefs, mm. or she's succumbed to using one of those phrases which is subtle enough to possibly sound passable, mm. but have oh, the know. deep racist undertones of you know it's okay to be white. Yeah. Presupposes that you know, if you're no other if way. you're at that level of power, you've got to know by now. Yeah. America first, being yeah. and Australia first, being sort of yeah. really old catch cries of white supremacists, mm. um, and now you know the the like almost the official government slogan yeah. of the United States, mm. and um, Fraser Anning talking about the final solution, and now it's okay to be oh, white, um, okay which is a catch cry of white supremacists and neo-Nazi organisations. Mm. Um, who do we have to? Um, Congratulate for for having voted yes yeah. on this motion. Just, I mean, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I, I was just going to say. I mean, mm. uh, you know, I did hear um, on the radio this morning someone saying, "Well, you know, we just didn't quite know that that was uh, what that motion was. We mm. came in and we voted with our priority." Yeah. Mm. And, and, and I mean, then they say it's regrettable that we didn't realise oh, that. I know. Yeah. I mean, oh. this is terrifying because it means people Absolutely. go into the yeah. Senate and vote on something they don't even know what it is. Yes. So, so just, just to put some context, you're, there was 28 senators, people mm. like Eric Arbetz, Richard Colbeck, Fraser Annie, uh, Corey Bernardi, just some of those guys who probably woke up, decided to have their lattes, walked yeah. in and really wanted to go to the pub really mm. early because the Caulfield Cup was on or the yeah. Everest was on and they just voted. Uh, Indigenous Minister Nigel Scullion yeah. from the Country Liberal Party and the NT, Zed Cecilia um, from the Liberal Party and the ACT, Erica Betts, like you said, Richard Colbeck from the Tas- um, Tasmanian Liberal Party, also Jonathan uh, Dunningham as well, Fraser Anning uh, from the Cata Party, Matt Canavan, National Party, 
Pauline Hanson, One Nation, James McGrath from the Liberal Party, Barry O'Sullivan, National Party, Jane Stoker, Liberal Party, Corey Bernardi, Australian Conservatives, and the rest are from the SA Liberal Party, Simon Birmingham, Lucy Gachui, and Rustin. And then we've got the WA Liberal Party, Slade Brockman, Michaelia Cash, uh, Peter Georgiou from the One Nation Party in that state, Linda Reynolds from the Liberal Party again, Dean Smith from the WA Liberal Party, and then let's move to New South Wales. Shall we? We've got Conchetta Fioravanti Wells. Uh, we've got David Lanehelm from Lanehelm, big pardon, from the Liberal Democrats. Although he probably fight for my right to mispronounce his name. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Jim Mullen from the New South Wales Liberal Party and John Williams as well from the National Party in that state. And um, let's move home. But 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 I like the fact yep. that there's already people mm. blaming uh, the staff. So right. uh, Christian Porter, the Attorney General, was sort of saying, "Oh, you know, there was an early email sent by his staff without his acknowledgement, without his knowledge." It's mm. like, oh, and yeah. the sleep at the wheel. <laughs> yeah, and shall we wrap it up with the last three li- yep. from the Liberal Party? So we have so our very own. We Who? have Mitch Firefield from the Victorian Liberal Party, Jane Hume, and Bridget McKenzie from Boo. Boo. <laughs> Boo, indeed. And just just pointing out, I don't know if we mentioned it in this entire segment. It was twenty-eight to thirty-one. That's Close. so scary. That is so close. scary. 28 to 31. That is... Senate motion. Far too close. But it's country. a statement of their beliefs, basically. And so, um, I, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm going to be open-minded. Maybe some of our listeners may have thought about voting for the Liberal Party based on, I don't know, economic stuff. I, I can't really tell you why. But if you were thinking of it, Take those names in particular and for, please vote against them. Yeah, well, I, I don't think we're allowed to tell. Them. Of course, we're not that close to the election yet. No, so. I, we haven't entered yeah, the, so the, the all period yet. All we just yet. have to say is or keep it in mind. Keep, keep in mind yes. that you can Write vote those against names people down. if you want to. Yeah, keep it in mind that you're voting in a government that's happy to advertise itself as blatantly racist. Mm. Blatantly. Um, <laughs> shall we decompress? Oh, you and know, just, no, there's mm, just one what? more. Mm. Mm? News item. Yes. Not necessarily alternative news. Yes. But today, oh. or possibly yesterday, the time is always a little bit difficult, you know, mm. in, uh, in Canada. Mm. But marijuana has been officially legalized. <laughs> And uh, I have. It was. They were billing that it was going to happen in the summer when I was there, <laughs> <laughs> so ripped off. But uh, yeah, it has happened. Uh, so we'll be interested to watch that. Well, now we're going to throw very quickly to one of a CSA, a community service announcement, and then we'll be right back with an interview. You're listening to Community Breakfast here on 3CR. Hi, I'm Romy. I'm 14 years old, and I'm part of a group organising a children's march for Nauru. Kids on Nauru are not free. They are suffering very much. Join kids, youth and families on Sunday, October 21st at 11am at Birurungma near Fed Square to call for the freedom of refugees in detention, especially children. This is a peaceful, family-friendly event and will include children's speeches and singing. The Artist Committee is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to... 3CR Breakfast on 855am 3CR. It's time to get our next guest. Sorry, I'm trying, I nearly said Wednesday Breakfast, so that's why I was trying to just, yeah, (laughs) let people know that they're listening to The Breakfast Show. Um, It's time now to introduce our guest. Last week we um, spoke 
in uh, relation to um, some funding that is um, funding, going to be cut. Yeah, yeah funding yeah. gap for people with neurological degenerative uh, diseases. Diseases, yeah. And I guess um, it's all about um, 80,000 Victorians with neurological conditions being abandoned with four state-based neurological organisations, including the Epilepsy Foundation um, you know, lobbying governments to ensure that funding gaps affected from the 1st of July do not result in a loss of services to 80,000 of those people. This weekend, the Epilepsy Foundation are holding their first ever walk for epilepsy at Princess Park in Carlton. To talk to us a little bit more about that, we are joined by the CEO of Epilepsy Foundation, Graham Shears. Good morning, Graham. Uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us on uh, 3CR Breakfast. Just quickly, I know um, I, I just mentioned earlier that last week we actually spoke to um, Chief Executive Officer for MND, uh, Rodney Harris, regarding your lobbying for governments in, in relation to the funding gaps for um, neurological uh, conditions. Can you give us a little bit of, a, of an, an update as to you know what you, your organisation is fighting for in, in, in relation to that with the other three organisations? Um, yes, well, one of the one of the issues is with the rollout of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the state government's committed its disability funding to go into the NDIS uh, funds, uh, and unfortunately for the four neurological agencies, um, uh, for reasons from history, we've been funded out of the disability mm. uh, bucket, if you like, and so our funding... Um, uh, from that sort of information services stream uh, will end at the end of this financial year. Um, and we've been working with uh, government to try and solve what is really an unintended consequence um, because for all of us there's only a very small percentage of our clients that will be supported by the NDIS. So uh, um, we've been trying to work with them to uh, get some guaranteed funding past that date and... Uh, uh, look, at the moment we're continuing to negotiate and work with them. They're trying to find ways to do it, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a problem for the government because they've, you know, the funding they used to provide to us has been given to the NDIS. So, uh, 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 and Rodney did mention that obviously people living with complex chronic and neurological conditions rely on specific and personalised um, information from, from bodies such as yours. And with the loss of that sort of $5 million, it, it seems like it's... Uh, Going to put you your services in, in you know in, in a pretty um, in a in a predicament in a tough situation there. Oh, it does uh, certainly in the, uh, for the epilepsy foundation. It's uh, uh, you know it's uh, more than sixty percent of our operating revenue uh, at risk. So uh, look, I think the the government uh, uh, and, and the Department of Health and Human Services is is doing its best to try and resolve it, but. Um, as we're speaking today, um, I think some progress has been made, but uh, we don't have a commitment to ongoing funding past the end of next year at this stage. And just to, to give people some insight, epilepsy is a disorder of the brain function that involves um, recurring seizures. And I guess living with epilepsy is not just about managing those seizures. It's probably more about learning to, to build that resilience concerning the, the associated health and, and well-being impacts, the economic and, and social um, impacts as well on, on family members. Is the, the, the idea behind this walk to, to let a lot of Victorians know about the, the condition but also to raise some much-needed funds? Oh, exactly. I think, um, 
You know, the, the World Health Organization says the burden of disease is greater than for breast cancer, but, um, you know, you don't hear much about it. Mm. A bit of a hidden disease, and uh, uh, with the walk, we're trying to do two things, which is raise awareness in the community about epilepsy and the difficulties that people face, but also really let people with epilepsy know that they're not alone, that the community will get behind them, come out and walk in support of them and, and just say, look, we know this can be a very socially isolating disease. People don't want to get out in the community in case they have a seizure. Um, and we're saying, look, people need to understand more about it and, and let people know they're not alone with their condition, that there is support in the community for them. And, Graham, one of the surprising things I read was, um, you know, I guess we talk about medical advancements and we talk about conditions getting uh, less and less. It, it was interesting to, not interesting, but it was it quite, it struck me to see that um, around 60 people, um, Victorians, die each year as a result of their epilepsy. Yes, they do. And, and um, so um, the Victorian government uh, reports it's in the top five causes of avoidable death young people from 5 to 29 um, which is a you know a really scary figure and and those avoidable deaths can be can be reduced by people understanding their epilepsy um, having good risk management plans and and uh, that's the sort of work we do with people to support them to understand their epilepsy and help them manage the condition as well and manage the risks um, and so that's uh, you know funding's vital for us to enable us to continue to do that work and um, you know, to be able to help not only people with epilepsy but teachers, disability support workers, aged care workers, people in the workplace understand epilepsy so they can support people in those areas. And that, and that is, therein lies the, the reason, I guess, behind your alliance too because, you know, each of your organisations is predominantly responsible for the delivery of education programs that support those individuals as well as their families living with these conditions to better manage them more so than, you know, essentially trying to use that money to find a cure because obviously there's always research happening but the educational side is quite um, important. Well, um I think uh, 54 years ago when the Epilepsy Foundation started, uh, there were 30% of people or one-third of people with epilepsy didn't get um, control of their seizures with medical intervention and drugs. And today, 54 years later, there's 30% of people with epilepsy that don't get control of their seizures through um, drugs or medical intervention. So mm. the problem hasn't been solved by medical science yet. I think there's some promising stuff on the horizons, but... Um, at this stage, we've got a large percentage of people with epilepsy that need the support to manage um, their condition. And in terms of the uh, the walk, it's it's an in inaugural walk. Um, as, as as I mentioned, it's the first time that it's being held. Uh, can you give us some details about um, where it's at and how people can get involved? Okay, so um, the walk's going to be at Princess Park, um, and uh, the sort of rallying point is on the west side, uh, just north of the Carlton Football Oval there. Um, so I think it's called Lawn 5. Um, if people want to register and come along and show their support, they can go to walkforepilepsy.com.au um, or they can call us on 1300 437 453. Um, it's going to be a fun day. The weather gods have been kind to us. The weather forecast looks great. Um, and um, look, there's plenty of live entertainment and music and games for kids and face painting and a sausage sizzle and we're aiming to have a, a lot of fun as we're doing some fundraising. 
And I think more importantly, um, you, you mentioned, you know, that the health and lifestyle outcomes for those living with epilepsy have slightly improved in, in recent years. So with that loss of their funding package in, uh, reducing um, and increasing the strain on their primary health care systems, it's quite important for people who might know or who, who might just be in the area to, to drop in and, um, you know, lend your support. Oh, come along and lend support. That would be great. Getting the community behind people with epilepsy is uh, going to give them comfort that they're being understood and that uh, the community is behind them. Graham, thank you very much for um, joining us on 3CR Breakfast and hopefully it's a successful um, Sunday. Thanks very much. And that was uh, Graham Shears, the CEO of the Epilepsy Foundation. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This year's TILDA, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, is packed with stories that represent the rich tapestry of trans and gender diverse people's lives. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com. A 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. This is Irie Lecker, you're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka, gets up one talks. You are listening to 3CR Community Breakfast, and that was Yako Pamane by the Black Orchid String Band. Um, and we play that not just because it is a really fun, sort of great rocking tune, but also because we've got Erwin, um, who is a member of the Black Orchid String Band and also one of the presenters on uh, uh, Voice for West Papua, which uh, is every Tuesday evening at 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. And we have Owen on the line right now. How are you, Owen? I'm good. How are you, Phil? <laughs> Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're here to um, give us a bit of an update on um, on the West Papuan um, sort of 
independence movement and what's been happening in the UN, but also to talk about the special events happening this Saturday. Could we start with the uh, with a bit of news? Um, so uh, we we may or may not have heard that Vanuatu um, yeah. took the the case of human rights violations in West Papua, which is claimed by Indonesia, to the Human Rights Council, um, talking about how the Human Rights Council at the UN should be investigating um, human rights violations. Um, uh, and this which is, is in, in West Papua. Which is in West, yes. yes, in West Papua. Yeah. Um, can you can you tell us about what what happened next? That was at the end of last month. Yes, that's all. Last month, last month was called uh, United. United Nations General Assembly. That's, mm. uh, when Vanuatu addressing the uh, human rights human rights violation in West Papua to the UN, and there was uh, uh, I was uh, Vanuatu and behind this Vanuatu support by um, also the uh, Tuvalu and Marshall Island. Uh, the two countries also support uh, Vanuatu. Mm. And also the center in a few weeks before that the UN United Nations General Assembly in Pacific Island Forum and Vanuatu already mentioned that they will uh, support, they will try to uh, get support from any other country to support the self-determination of the West Papua and bringing the issue of the uh, human rights violation in West Papua. Yeah, um, Shalo Salwai, the uh, Prime Minister of Vanuatu, has been a long-time supporter of, um, of human rights and of the, of the West Papua self-determination movement. Uh, can, there was also a, a petition that was circulated in, in West Papua um, co- covertly um, against the wishes of the Indonesian government. Uh, what was that petition? Can you tell us what that was about? Uh, when organized by the student movement and also the student act, uh, the activists of West Papua, they go around West Papua, around from the start from the the Sorong is the western and the all the way down to the uh, Jayapura and also down to Morocco to Highland as well. Mm, across the whole country. Across all the country. Not only West Papua, but also the non-West Papua, non-indigenous people, is uh, also they signed the petition and support of the uh, West Papua in United Nations. That uh, it, it, it is about I think uh, it's about seventy percent of the people on the in the province. Yeah, seventy yeah, percent of the people of the West Papua is signed the petition. And they bring into uh, United Nations to uh, bring in the uh, like to vote for them. They they talk they they petition is tell the the world that uh, West Papua want to independent. The people of West Papua want to independent, not join with Indonesia. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you for for telling us about that. Um, so we'll we'll keep monitoring these stories, but it's really exciting to to hear the 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 West Papua independence movement hitting um, the national stage. Um, have we have we seen this kind of international um, attention on the West Papua struggle before? We we haven't we haven't seen before that 
this is the biggest one. This is the biggest one we try to bring in the use of the this Papua to uh, the colonization status. Is to bring, when to when this Papua become the 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 colonization status, that means West Papua can have a choice, uh, have a choice mm. to uh, to want to independent or want to stay with Indonesia. That was the, 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 the act of free choice back in 1963. Yep. That supposedly was supposed to be a referendum yep. choosing between joining Indonesia or independence. And yep. they just chose one, hand-picked 1,000 people or thereabouts to, to vote. Is that right? Yeah, that's mm. right. That's correct. Mm. correct. Yeah. Mm. So, so it's, it's exciting to, uh, to have a bit more news. Now, um, sort of related to that, uh, we want to talk about the, um, and I might pronounce the word wrong, the Barapen happening this Saturday. Can you tell us, what is a Barapen? Yes, a Barapen is a, a traditional cooking from not only West Papua, but around Pacific. Like, they have a different name also. And there's, the Barapen is like, what we call a, you bending the rock, you dig the hole, bending the rock and putting the rock, the hot rock in the hole and put the foot on the top and you put the hot rock in the top of the foot and after that you just cover up. It's, just, it's like oven, but it's underground. Oh, an underground yeah. oven. Is it similar yeah, to a hangi? Yes, it's like a hangi. It, mm. it is hangi, but they have a different name. Hmm. Okay, and who's who's organising this this um this feast? This is uh, organised by um, uh, Black Orchid Trimben doing Black Orchid Trimben doing uh, with um, like Amos and me and the other Black Orchid Trimben group, and we joined together with uh, Raya Raya. Raya is working in the second and in the third year. It's got a big year in the France East with uh, the thing happening on Saturday. Beautiful. Now, will there be, um, apart from the food, oh, sorry, first of all, I think it's good to point out that the, the food is gluten-free yes. um, and there's also going to be vegetarian and vegan options as well. Um, so can you tell us when, when is the event happening and can, can we get tickets? Like what's the arrangement? Yes, uh, the, the, the ticket is we can just go into, uh, uh, Barapen, or also you can go into the, uh, Black Office Crimbin Facebook page and there's, uh, the booking ticket also there. Mm. Uh, so the ticket is, um, Fourteen, uh, yeah, fourteen dollar for uh, eighteen, eighteen years old to go, and uh, twenty dollar for uh, for adults, adult, hmm. for adults, and also that uh, the kids is free, hmm. we, and also beside the food we have uh, also there will be uh, joint music by Black Band. And also the the film as well. The film we putting in the also at the same time. Beautiful. Just time. to recap, so there'll be short yeah. films relating to West Papua, music by the Black Orchid String Band. Tickets are twenty dollars for adults, fourteen if yeah. you're under eighteen, and small children are free. 
Uh, and you, you said that you could get tickets online. I, I know that you mentioned the Black Orchid String Band, uh, the Black Orchid String Band uh, Facebook page, so people can yes. just look that up. Uh, yes. What's the the address? The address is 3038 Harrison Street, Brunswick East. Mm, that's next to the Russian church on Mary yes. Creek, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, Russian church. Yeah, so Beautiful. Very, very close with the series. Ah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Okay, well, um, we'll we'll put all the web um, details up on our on our run sheet. Um, Edwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Will. Thank you very much. Beautiful. And Thanks if people so. want to know more about West Papua, um, and to know, keep up to date with news in West Papua, you can join Edwin and the gang on um, Tuesday nights at six thirty yeah. p.m. Edwin, have a lovely day. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts. Face the future. Face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. A 3CR supporter. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. The Voice of West Papua now has a one-hour show. We have moved from Monday 6.30 to Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. Yes, more news and music from West Papua. On 20th of October, come enjoy an experience. Traditional parapen, underground cooking from West Papua. Fundraising for Black Orchid Shrimp Band with music, food and movie. Hell in Brunswick East, cooking will start at 5 p.m. Pre-booking ticket only. 20 for adults, 14 for children, kids under 5 is free. Find the event on Black Hockey Stream Band Facebook page. Book through Try Booking. See you there at 20 of October. Black Hockey Stream Band, proud 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR. So our next interview actually comes to us on on the move. We've got the Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance on the phone today to talk to us about the um, current campaign uh, they're kicking off this morning. And we've got Charlotte from WACA, for short, uh, here today to talk about it. Good morning, Charlotte. 
Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. So I suppose, um, well, the action's starting about right now. What's going yeah. on? <laughs> yeah, so we're just on our way um, this morning to the um, Herald Sun headquarters, of, like their offices in um, South Bank in Melbourne. Um, we're just about to head over there now. We're doing this action today to um, kick off our Disrupt campaign mm-hmm. uh, because the whole point of Disrupt, the campaign, it goes for 30 days, but the whole point is to um, basically target the corporate scumbags who, um, who are kind of like profiting, sorry, who are um, privileging the few. So like... Mm-hmm. We see we see the Herald scum as basically the mouthpiece of the um, privileged few, and um, like a propaganda machine for the state. So I'm next to some very noisy. No problem. Um, the Herald is the propaganda machine of the state, and we've just we've had enough. You know, like we've lived in we've all lived in Melbourne most of our lives, um, and we've we've just we're fed up with the racist portrayals that are finding their way into their pages every day. Mm. So we're about to head down there and blockade their workplace. <laughs> and I suppose, uh, as you said, the process is in response to the Herald Sun, uh, as you say, fueling hate and upholding systems of white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism. Um, yeah. Could you give us an example of kind of uh, those those sorts of articles, those sorts of stances that you think? Yeah, so recently um, you've seen the targets on um, Melbourne's African community. <clears throat> Um, coming from the Herald Sun and Ch- Channel 7, as well as all the kind of media owned by um, Rupert Murdoch. Um, and that's just basically been a, a total beat-up. And it serves one purpose, which is to um, to fear-monger and create a climate of um, fear and distrust and xenophobia and that's just to get, I think, like, to get the, like, the Liberal state government, sorry, to get the Liberal Party into state government here in Melbourne, Victoria. But um, it also, like, that, that's what, it seems that that's what sells their papers, so... Yeah, um, responding to the crowd's fear. Yeah, they, I guess they're Being appealing to the lowest common denominator, mm. but they're also serving their, the interests of their, like, rich cronies by, you know, co- continuously denying that climate change is real or even a problem. Um, and a lot of us t- today, you know, we're a mixed group, um, but at least half of us are in our 20s and um, we don't want the world to, like, be a fiery hot hellhole before we're well, <laughs> into our 50s, you know? Like, yeah, and this I- is a problem that we're going to have to deal with our generation, mm. um, definitely, and definitely. the paper that's like the most circulated paper in the in the state or in the whole country, I think. And that's a fascinating is, um, a point you raise there is that kind of uh, intergenerational or, or generational almost war <laughs> or yeah. shift in opinion. And I suppose yeah. you're calling for a not only the protest today, but you're calling for a national wide boycott of the paper. And I suppose yeah. what are you telling audiences? Why should we? completely boycott this thing? Should we just boycott this paper or should we be pushing for more um, responsible journalism on a massive scale? I think um, that there's two parts to it. I think um, boycotting the Herald Sun is, I think, imperative. In Melbourne especially, I feel like 
um, it doesn't exactly match with the um, the broader culture in Melbourne. So mm. I feel like, you know, when you're um, in the inner north and stuff, we're seeing their papers in cafes and places where, like, people don't even agree with what's in the paper. So kind of just call on people to, you know, talk to your workplaces, especially you work in a cafe, and say, hey, do we actually have to have this newspaper in here? Do we actually agree with what's being represented in its pages? And I suppose um, on, that, on that account, do you have a possible alternative news outlet that you think uh, we should be supporting or, yeah, I suppose? Yeah, no. well, I think um, there's, a, there's a lot out there, but I think, um, like, SBS has been doing really good stuff through the feed um, and that, like, they publish those videos that are, like, really, like, Jan's rants and stuff like that. Uh, but also community radio, like people <laughs> need to get behind things that are run by the community for the community um, and not just these um, media outlets that are just, you know, there to benefit. Like, it for the profit, yeah. Yeah, scumbags. And I suppose uh, the final thing is, uh, well, 30 days of action, that's a yeah. huge prolonged protest. Um, could you give us just a quick, I know we're pressed, a little bit pressed for time, but a quick rundown of what that's going to involve? Yeah, so um, this Sunday we've got a National Day of Action uh, against Qantas. So um, people, we're asking people to head down to their um, local airport and um, do any type of disruptive actions at the check-in counter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sun- Sunday the 21st. Um, so the AGM is coming up on the 26th, the Qantas AGM, and we wanted to put pressure on them and ask their shareholders to pass a motion to call on Qantas to commit to ruling out in participation, uh, sorry, to commit to ruling out participation in deportation. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they're the spirit of Australia and um, they represent the country and we just think there's no business in abuse that they should not be involved in deporting people to death and danger. Definitely. And just to, just to clarify for those audiences who don't know what that is, that is uh, Qantas's participation in the deportation and sometimes disappearance even of refugees uh, yeah. living in, asylum, in Australia. Yeah they, also, yeah, they deport people. They also um, take them to Manus and Nauru. Uh, oh, no, they, they take them to um, Christmas Island, sorry. Um, and, um, yeah, we just want... We would be urging travellers to choose another airline until they... Um, commits in the way that um, Virgin in Europe has to not to be involved in deportation. We think it's um, and until they commit, they remain complicit in um, this harmful system. Uh, I so really, just to add one more thing sure. here, um, also for Disrupt, we've got the Sale for Justice launch coming up on the 1st of um, November at Dockland in the city. Um, and Sale for Justice, if you want to, I don't know, you listeners want to look it up on social media, on Twitter or Facebook. But Brilliant. basically, um, some, a bunch of people are sailing a freedom flotilla to Manus next, early next year. So we're launching the campaign on the 1st of October with a big action. It's going to be really fun. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte, for um, joining us. Get back Thank to your you. protest. I hope it goes Thanks. wonderfully successfully. And, um, yeah, if you're interested, we look forward to people awesome. getting involved. Thank, Thank you. you. See ya. Bye. 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park 
to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R dot net, a 3CR supporter. Hello, it's Fiona Scott-Norman here, and I would just like to say congratulations. You are doing something very important right now, and you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR, Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important, community is important, community radio is very, very important, and you are a winner. Yes, and uh, welcome to 3CR this morning to Dr. Timothy Jones. I think, uh, Tim, you're on the line to us right now. Yes, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Tim. And uh, I think, you know, you're known to our listeners anyway because you have a monthly segment here on Wednesday Breakfast. But just to remind people, you're from La Trobe University. And this morning you're going to be talking about the report Preventing Harm, Promoting Justice, Responding to LGBT Conversion Therapy in Australia. And you're one of the authors of that report. And, and before we continue, I just wanted to let people know that some of the content may be distressing, especially if you've experienced a gay conversion or conversion therapy or you have friends who have. So I felt it important for, to let people know that. Tim, the report was released on Monday. And I understand it's the first research on the practice of conversion therapy in Australia. Yes, um, it's been a little studied uh, phenomena anywhere in the world, and this is certainly the, the first um, dedicated research in Australia. Um, we combined uh, historical and social and legal analyses to try and understand this quite a complex problem. And so, who were some of the groups behind the, the research? So behind the research, so it was a it was a great team of people. Um, so I worked with uh, Gay and Lesbian Health Victoria and the Human Rights Law Centre, uh, groups with a great track record uh, of doing applied research and advocacy in the area of um, LGBT rights. Yes, and I understand it was funded by La Trobe University. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So what were the aims of the study? What were you looking to do? Well, um, conversion therapy is a, it's a bit of a funny topic. People, it's salacious, scandalous, um, but people didn't take it very seriously. Um, few people thought that it was a real problem in Australia. Uh, they thought, oh, it's an American thing or something that happened in the past. So the main goal of this research was to determine whether it is a problem and what is the scope and nature of conversion therapy as practiced in Australia. Mm, and so can you explain uh, for people listening what actually is meant by the term conversion therapy or gay conversion therapy? Sure. So um, conversion therapy uh, is a bit of an umbrella term for a range of practices uh, formed by uh, the groups of society which don't accept that LGBT people are happy, healthy, normal people. Um, 
So the ideology uh, is that if you're not straight and cisgender, you're sick or broken and need to be fixed. And there are a range of different activities and practices uh, that are pursued to try and sexually or gender reorient people. Um, and that can range from um, clinical, medical uh, and health practices um, to uh, pastoral counselling to peer, peer support groups like modelled on, actually historically modelled on Alcoholics Anonymous um, to those kinds of um, support groups to spiritual activities like prayer and um, spiritual deliverance and things like that. And, and I know that uh, it also extends to uh, aversion therapy in, in some situations. Yes, so one of the disturbing things in the report was the extent of malpractice amongst medical clinicians. Um, the report does document the experience of someone who was um, administered electroshock aversion therapy. That's not common, that's like really right out on the extreme edge of malpractice. Um, but probably a third of, I think probably I think more than a third of our participants had engaged in paid um, practices with clinical health professionals. And so our recommendations are to, to part of our, some of our recommendations are to strengthen the laws around uh, malpractice in this area. Mm. And I understand from you know the historical review that you've done that in fact. Um, conversion therapy has been found and, and publicly stated in the United States, in an article in a magazine as conservative as Time magazine that it is ineffective, harmful, unethical, and also you make the point contravenes international human rights conventions. So it has been, you know, criticized, you know, publicly as recently as, you know, 2010, 2012, and yet uh, it's still being practiced in Australia. Yeah, it's one of the, um, the difficult problems in trying to end conversion therapy. There's one thing to pass a law banning it, um, but because of the diversity of practices that are included under that umbrella term of conversion therapy, it's, one, it's you know, a bit more easy to regulate uh, doctors and psychologists. But a lot of the practices are happening in the religious communities uh, as religious practice, and it's very difficult for the law to engage in those areas. Um, we are actually recommending uh, that the law does uh, where, it relate, where it relates to minors, um, all the evidence that conversion therapy practices are, de- are harmful, are always harmful, they're never effective and they always harm people um, and minors cannot consent to engaging in practices so we're recommending that the law does engage uh, and ban anybody from from practicing conversion therapy with minors um, but adults can consent to do harmful things, that's a, that's a common um, principle in the law in our society and um, and so adults in a religious uh, context might want to engage in prayer, they might want to pray or get pastoral counselling to change their sexual and gender orientation, and whilst that's not um, going to be effective uh, and may harm them, um, you know... The yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky, tricky process. legal yeah. area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the points you make in the report is this, it may be increasing in Australia. Um, So I'm wondering, who's practicing it? Like, where is it coming from? 
So, I mean, uh, this wasn't a comprehensive national inquiry. This was a pilot study. Yes. But we interviewed people uh, around the country, in almost all states and territories, uh, and um, we found evidence that suggests that the conversion therapy ideology and practice is pervasive uh, in conservative Protestant uh, communities. Um, uh, And there's also evidence, but not enough to suggest uh, exactly the extent, but there's evidence that suggests that it's also practiced in other faith communities, like uh, in the Jewish community, Muslim communities, Hindu, Buddhist, pretty much every conservative uh, religious. So so the kind of underlying thing is it's the, the conservative end of um, both the Christian and Protestant groups, uh, but also other religions as well, including yeah, that's, Islam. That's right. And demographically, that's 10% of Australia at least. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, so are school chaplains involved in this by any chance? Um, so that, that didn't come up in our study, um, but there have been reports in the media of, um, of school chaplains engaging in conversion therapy with children uh, without their parents' consent, quite disturbingly, and so some of our recommendations are that it might be made explicit in funding agreements school chaplains that they're not limited to teach uh, conversion therapy ideologies or practice conversion therapy or refer children to conversion therapy providers. Uh, I mean, I'm just interested here um, because the chaplaincy program has been controversial almost from the beginning and continues to be. The present government has given more funding to the chaplaincy program, and yet uh, I realize it's not every chaplain in, in every situation, but certainly your, the fact that your report has recommended um, you know um, uh, that chaplains do not do this practice and uh, and also have education around it suggests that it is an issue and to the extent that the government is funding chaplaincy programs, the government to some extent is complicit in this um, Well, we think the government has a role to regulate and make sure that uh, where, where the government can control action, uh, particularly with regard to minors um, that it prevents and does all that it can to prevent harmful practices like this for minors. And I think it's an interesting moment in time where um, I think public uh, understanding of uh, and our willingness to act in the, the really difficult area where uh, ideas about religious freedom and sexual discrimination intersect um, is changing. So a, I think there's a moment where the, where the public has the appetite to think about uh, and make and make careful decisions about what to, what what kinds of religious freedom are appropriate and what kinds of harm um, we need to protect people from. Yeah, I, I found reading particularly the about the interviews and the results of the interviews you did with 15 people who had experienced conversion therapy, religious religion-based conversion therapy from the ages of 18 to 59. I mean, that was just amazing. And that, that had happened between 1986 and as recently as 2016. Um, I found it quite moving uh, to read what had happened to them. Were there, you know, were there any similarities in their experiences that stood out for you? Um, yeah, I, I might just correct you there for a moment. Sure, please. Um, they, yeah. they were 18 to 51 at the ages. That was the ages of when we interviewed them. Um, but a third of our participants uh, started, were compelled or coerced 
to engage in conversion therapy before they were at the, at the age of 18, so when they were minors. Okay, yes. I was really surprised and quite disturbed at the number of people that were forced to go through these harmful practices as children. Um, so that was one of the things that really shocked me. Um, in terms of uh, commonalities across people's experience, uh, the, the depth of the, of the trauma caused by these therapies uh, was really evident in all of the interviews. Um, so people who've either grown up in communities or joined communities as adults where they're told they're too deep uh, and important parts of themselves are incompatible, their gender or sexuality and their spiritual identity. The trauma of believing that and trying to work that out and change that uh, is really deep and long-lasting. Um, people had... Uh, incredible. So some people spent decades trying to change themselves. Some went through all kinds of um, attempts. Most people tried multiple different types of uh, activities to change their gender or sexuality uh, to, to, in order to try and become straight and cisgendered. Um, almost everybody was so distressed by this conflict that they considered suicide at one point or another. Like it's, re it's really deep traumas that people went through. Um, most people had difficulty, many, many people had difficulty forming relationships, having healthy relationships with their body and with their sexuality after going through these experiences. Um, many people had deep grief at the lost opportunity if you've spent 10, 15, 20 years trying to be sexually someone other than you are, and then you become uh, a, a full and whole sexual person in your 30s or 40s, you've most many people described about losing their losing their youth, their twenties just disappearing or waiting for life to start. Um, yeah, uh, so huge huge lost opportunities there. Well, Tim, it's such an important report, and um, you know, having read it, I, I mean, as I said, I, I found it incredibly moving, and uh, I imagine writing it too must have um, been challenging in doing the research and speaking to the people. Yeah, this was hard work. Um, some of the hardest work I've ever done, but also I think the work I'm most proud of. It's really uh, great to work with such brave people who were willing to tell their stories. It was difficult for everybody to tell their stories, um, but but the the reason everybody wanted to do it was they wanted the practice to stop. They didn't want other people to suffer in the way that they had. And um, we're really hopeful that government and uh, religious communities can read the report and see the harms that people are experiencing and work to better protect uh, and care for people, both um, governments protecting people from harm, but communities, religious communities, uh, providing safe and appropriate spiritual care for LGBT people. Well, congratulations on the report, and I must say it's, it's very clear and beautifully written, and uh, I recommend it to anyone who's interested. It's something really we should all know. Certainly should go on university courses for anyone who's <laughs> teaching in the sexuality area. Really important groundbreaking work, and as you say, it all still points to the need for more research, but uh, thank you and, and your colleagues uh, for bringing it together. And I, I just want to, to quote from the report itself, Preventing Harm, Promoting Justice looks to a future where no person of faith is pressured to choose one valued and sacred part of themselves at the expense of another. 
I thought that was an amazing statement. And uh, so thank you very much, Dr. Tim Jones, for coming on the show this morning. And uh, all the best with uh, your future work in this area. And for anyone who's listening, for whom uh, this has been distressful or has raised memories of difficult situations, you can contact Lifeline on 131114 or QLife from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. on 1-800-184-527. And thanks again to Tim, Dr. Timothy Jones from Latrobe and his colleagues who participated in getting this report up. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. This year's TILDA, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, is packed with stories that represent the rich tapestry of trans and gender diverse people's lives. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And that was Down to Hell by the John Butler Trio. Now, up for our kind of next interview, we have um, a coverage on the recent legislation of the re-education camp for Muslim group the Ouijas. And we have Dr. Kaz Ross on the line to talk about China's current national interest under this notion of a future dream uh, for a greater China and how the Ouijas fit into this picture. So, uh, Dr. Kaz is from the University of Tasmania and we have her on the line. Good morning, Kaz. Good morning. Um, so... I think just to start off, could, we, could you explain kind of this concept of a better China, better future, and how it's kind of uh, manifesting itself into domestic policy within China? Okay, so the current China leader is a chap called Xi Jinping, and he's been in power since 2013. And one of his major goals is to make China very prosperous and very stable. And so to do that, his uh, had a massive anti-corruption campaign. Many officials have been purged. Quite a few people have been jailed. Um, he's also changed the political structure so that he's wielding power across all sort of realms of the political spectrum in China. So he's the General Secretary of the Communist Party, the President of the PRC, the Chairman of the Central Military Commission. And he's also rolled out his vision of the future, which is called loosely the Chinese dream or the China dream. It's pretty unclear exactly what it means. It's kind of one of those things you can fill in the, in the gaps yourself of what you want it to be. But basically it's about national renewal. So China being, um, prosperous, stable, and also projecting that power out into the world. 
And so as part of that, you need to have a stable society with no disruptive elements. And that's how the re-education of the Uyghurs, the Muslims from the northwest province of China called Xinjiang, that's how the Uyghurs come to be locked up in re-education camps. As part of this drive to make China very, very stable, um, through the, uh, trying to achieve this China dream vision. And I suppose when we say uh, to make China stable, we're talking about the strengthening of ideology and stuff like that. Um, if we look at the Chinese government uh, system, the, this fact that uh, Xi Jinping has this extensive power, that must centralise power and really allow him to not only do these re-education camps, but have a great deal of power over his people. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, under um, Deng Xiaoping, who was the main leader after Chairman Mao died, um, so Deng Xiaoping took power in the 1980s, he made sure that the leadership was actually distributed across a couple of different roles. So no one person held all the main roles. Under Xi Jinping, that system's changed and he's brought all the power to himself. Um, but it's a huge, huge system. So although we can say that um, yes, this looks like he's creating a dictatorship. Actually, it's a huge mechanism of government. And the other thing worth noting is that the majority of people in China support this, and they support this kind of measure. Now, if you ask people on the eastern seaboard of China what's happening in Xinjiang province, mm. they probably don't really know in great detail, but they're very likely to tell you it's a place of lawlessness, there's a lot of danger there. There's a lot of violence there. We support the government's efforts to make it safe and to make it stable. So he does have um, great support from within China. And um, he's using a mechanism that's long existed in China, actually, education, um, uh, re-education of citizens without any lawful charging or then these people aren't arrested, they're not charged with anything, they're not in a jail, they're just held for their own re-education. And that system has existed for years. It had been abolished before Xi Jinping came in, came in but he's brought it back. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to ask why the specific technique of the re-education camps have been used. I know we've heard of uh, disappearances, you know, different sort of... Uh, deportation stuff that the Chinese government has done uh, to persecute, persecuted groups in the past. So I was wondering, why have they chosen this, well, tr as it sounds, traditional mechanism? Yeah, so the idea is that um, people have, in the case of the Uyghurs, the way that it's being talked about by the, um, by the leaders in China, is that it's like they're infected with a kind of a disease. So they have a disease... You could label it religious extremism. They're Muslims. Mm. Um, and they, they're being talked about as if they have a disease. So the re-education camps are almost like sending them to hospital. So you send them to hospital and you cure the disease as best you can. And you do that through studying the, um, you know, the teachings for the Chinese Communist Party, singing the patriotic songs. Uh, learning what's wrong with your religious extremism. But then once they're released back into the community, there's this notion that they have to keep self-strengthening, uh, they have to do public activities to show that they have a good understanding and so on and so forth. So it's, it's instead of thinking about it as a jail or something like that, an illegal thing, think about it more like trying to wipe out a disease. You can never wipe it out. They're always suspect. They always need to be under scrutiny. Um, and always showing that they're trying to deal with their own so-called illness, which in this case um, is uh, their religion. 
Um, I should also point out that in China there are different Muslim groups mm. and um, other Muslim groups are not subjected to this same kind of treatment. So you might ask, why the Uyghurs? Definitely, um, definitely was my next yeah. question. Yeah, that's sort of the next thing to find out, right? So the Uyghurs are in a province um, in the northwest called Xinjiang. And Xinjiang in Chinese means new frontier or new border. So it's one of those regions that's very volatile um, and it borders a number of countries. So I'll just tell you the, the countries that it borders. Mongolia, Russia, um, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan and India. So when you look at that kind of uh, list of countries um, and you realise that the uh, Uyghur people, they're Muslims and they're also um, not the same ethnicity as Han Chinese, the majority of the Chinese population. So they identify as um, their country as East Turkmenistan. So their particular land, they don't consider it to be part of China. Mm. They consider it to be part of East Turkmenistan and sharing a lot of cultural and religious characteristics with those other countries. And I suppose that, so does, that does pose a massive threat to the strengthening of ideology, especially within the, the China, speared by the Chinese ab- government. Absolutely. And yeah. so you've got a question that they ethnically identify with people from outside the borders, mm. that they are Muslims. Uh, they also have a strong independence movement outside yeah. of China. So they have links outside of China. And I guess the other thing is, and this is something that's just been coming out in the last few days, is that the Chinese government claims that there are over a thousand violent incidents mm. in Xinjiang against Han Chinese every year. And this has come out from the uh, editor-in-chief from the Global Times, which is... Um, kind of the propaganda newspaper from the, um, you know, media arm from the government. They're quite strident. And they're saying, look, the government doesn't report it because they don't want people to know how bad things are. Things are very bad. We know that there have been some ethnic riots and there's been some violence right. in the past. Um, it's actually worse than you think. This is according to the Global Times. Over a 1,000 incidents a year, something has to be done. It's just getting worse, and that's why the government's moved to disinfect the community from this religious extremism, cure them as best they can, and then monitor them once they're released. And I suppose just on the, the topic of press, an article came out in the BBC, and it's, it's interesting because uh, China's not so much engaged with a lot of uh, world or global discussion about them. They're usually very quick to... Uh, pass off international rulings and ignore them or stick to staunch sovereignty. So um, recently, just just this morning, an article came out of the BBC where China has actually organised an interview and tried to discuss the, the kind of the... Oh, the controversy around these camps, saying that they're actually colourful places where people can uh, get re-educated and actually, you know, get a good income. Can we believe any of this? Um, yeah, look, I think... I think this is part of the difficulty of the media censorship and control in China Mm. is that because it can't be independently verified, we're immediately suspicious, and as we should be, because um, really how are people finding out this story? They're finding out the story through uh, stories from relatives that Mm. are being circulated overseas, um, but mostly finding out the story through um, looking at satellite imagery and noting that these camps have doubled in size in the last 12 months. Uh, looking at things like advertisements for guards 
um, and look, trying to look at public announcements. So it's always been very hard to actually work out what's really going on. I think under Xi Jinping, because of his engagement with the world strategy, mm -hmm. um, wanting to be seen as a prosperous and powerful country, they're, they're changing up their media strategy. And um, it'll be interesting to see if they manage to pull this off. I doubt that anybody's going to believe it. But I also think that it's hard to underestimate how much people in China, um, who aren't Uyghurs, I mm. might point out, people in China support this. Yeah. Because there's been decades and decades of um, presenting the Uyghurs as a problem, as a violent group, as extremists, and they need to be um, pacified and they need to be part of a, a stable society and so they have to give up their ways. The other kind of groups that have been subjected to this have been, of course, Falun Gong, the banned meditation cult, yeah. um, the Tibetans, of course. And um, you did, sorry to interrupt, um, we're running out of time. You did mention that as almost uh, an interesting, um, almost trial run for what they're doing. Well, not trial run, but a previous persecution, that what they're now doing to the Ouija's. So it's definitely something for us to keep an eye out for and keep up to date. Um, I'd love to thank you for coming on our show, and we'll have to get you back to talk a little bit about uh, China's entrance into the global kind of sphere more so. But um, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was Dr. Kaz Ross from the University of Tasmania talking about um, China's recent uh, re-education camps with the Uyghurs. I should say recent. It's the recent legalization of the camps. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. You're listening to 3CR. We've had a massive show. We were just talking to Dr. Kaz Ross about um, the re-education camps going on in China. Before that, we actually had Tim Jones. Who talked about preventing harm, promoting justice, responding to... LGBT conversion therapy in Australia and if you were interested in that we'll have the report uh, on our website but also you might want to get on to your local member of government 
Uh, just before that, we also had WACA, the Whistleblowers and Activist Citizen Alliance, uh, and their blockade outside the Herald Sun. Also reminding you that a refugee walk will be coming up on Sunday the 21st outside the Birongma. Our website will have more details. That's right. And earlier we were speaking to um, Charlotte from WACA as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, no, that's what you just mentioned before. We were also speaking to Owen from the Black Orchid String Band um, mm-hmm. speaking about the West Papua Barapen Feast Community Organ- um, community Event that's happening this Saturday on that the 20th. good. And you'll yeah. find a link to tickets on our website. And then at the top of the show, uh, we were speaking to um, Graeme Shears, Shears, CEO of Epilepsy Foundation about the walk that's happening on the 21st of October. More details on our website. You've been listening to Community Breakfast. Next Hope you had a great day, folks. <laughs> yes, we um, Tune in tomorrow, Thursday breakfast, um, from 7.30. You folks have a great day. Uh, yeah. Bye. Bye. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.